In our first reading, the prophet Nathan confronted King David. It is a dangerous thing to confront those in power, but necessary because there is no such thing as a private sin. All sin is public, has public effects. And the sins of those in power can affect an entire nation. David's lust for Bathsheba compelled him to make inquiries about her. He learned that she was married to Uriah, one of the 30 best soldiers David had. Now, in those days, it was customary for Israeli soldiers to give their wives what in Hebrew was called a get, a divorce, before they went into battle. Should they fall in battle but their bodies aren't returned or they're mutilated beyond recognition or if they are missing or if they are captured and sold into slavery, their wives would be free to remarry. Without the get, they would be in a limbo status called the agunah, legally chained to a possibly dead husband and not free to remarry. Now, in all likelihood, Uriah gave Bathsheba the get, the divorce. David then justified acting on his lust because his thinking would have been, well, now Bathsheba's not really married. She, she's divorced. She's got the get. So it's not really adultery. When sin rules not only our passions, but our reason, we become geniuses in manipulating laws so we can claim something that is inherently immoral is legal, and if it's legal, well, it must be morally acceptable. See how that works? We do it all the time. David impregnated Bathsheba and attempted to manipulate Uriah into sleeping with his wife so the child would appear to be his. But Uriah would not abandon his post as the king's guard. His loyalty was actually interpreted by David as disobedience, and the king could legally put Uriah to death. And that's exactly what David did. David instructed his general, Joab, to put Uriah into the heat of battle and then withdraw support so that Uriah would be killed and his death would look like it just was an act of war when it was actually premeditated murder. And when David was informed that Uriah was killed, he married Bathsheba thinking he got away with adultery and murder. But he didn't. Nathan confronted the king with a fictitious account of theft and the need for restitution. As king, David was responsible to hold, uphold the rights of the defenseless. He fell for the trap, and he ordered the swift punishment of the perpetrator for taking what was not his. We always insist on the highest moral conduct from others but we fail to hold ourselves to the same high standards. 
And the prophet proclaimed, you are that man, and brought into the light the king's sins. But David manned up, and he said, I have sinned against the Lord. That took humility. That took a great deal of trust in God, and that took a lot of love of God. Nathan said God would not take David's life, but he would take that of the child that he and Bathsheba conceived. The sacred text says, The Lord struck the child that Uriah's wife bore to David, and it became very ill. David fasted intensely. He laid on the ground in total subjugation, hoping that the Lord would spare the child. And after seven days, the child died. Then David got up, bathed, anointed himself with oil, broke his fast, And all of this astonished his courtiers. And he said, while the child was still alive, I fasted and wept. For I said, who knows, the Lord may be gracious to me, and the child may live. But now he is dead. Why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I shall go to him, but he will not return to me. And then... There is a wonderful shift in the story. The text says that David went to console his wife, Bathsheba. She was no longer referred to as the wife of Uriah, but as David's wife. Genuine repentance resulted in restoring order in David and Bathsheba's life and order in the life of the kingdom. In our gospel text, we meet Simon, the Pharisee, and an unnamed person who is described merely as a sinful woman. But it teaches two things. First, there is no thought of ours that goes unnoticed by God. Not one thought goes unnoticed. Simon said to himself that if Jesus was a prophet, he would know what kind of woman it was that was actually touching him. And Jesus then revealed out loud Simon's thought, not to condemn, but to teach. Second, it was not the works of the woman that saved her, but her faith expressed in works. You cannot have faith without works. Can't do it. We can sit around and say, I believe in Jesus, Lord. Jesus, Lord and Savior. Jesus, my Savior. And if I am not living it, it's a lie. You cannot have faith without works. And for her, the act of entering the Pharisee's house, risking the physical attack that she would be subjected to by the moral purists, the act of being with the men in the, at dinner, at a time when women never ate with men. They always ate separately from the men. The intimacy with which this woman touched the Lord in a culture where a woman never touched a man who was not her husband or an immediate blood relative. And the act 
of pouring out that very expensive ointment and an alabaster flask. These were all outward signs that a profound interior conversion of heart had taken place. Our reading from 2 Samuel and from Luke's Gospel, separated by centuries, teach the same fundamental unchanging truth. Genuine conversion, genuine repentance begins when the soul opens up, even if only a crack, to God's mercy. No matter how badly we have fallen, and allow our renewal in God's mercy to be expressed in concrete works of faith by turning away from sin and conducting our lives by sharing the love of God that we experienced. That is the reality we are all called to.